And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 102. Okay, I'm going to come right out the gate with some sad shit. Okay. Right now I'm listening to Chase and Cosby. It's by the LA Times. Alert, alert. They called him. True. But sad part too, I love the freaking cover art. It's like a one of his sweaters that he would normally wear, you know, kind of like mm. unraveling. Such good cover art. Love anyway, that. Yes. So it's, I mean, trigger warning, it is so powerful because it's got victims talking and, you know, it's it's a hard case because his public persona just did not match up with who he is. And so it was just, it's just a hard case. And I think it's a very important case because it really, it just brings to light some of your own ways of thinking where you, where you go, well, why did I think that? Why did I just assume this? Or why did I, you know, and so it, if you, it's a really good way to really be introspective. So I highly recommend it yet, yeah, but for real, for real trigger warning, it's very powerful because, you know, it's victims telling their story and just the whole thing. It's crazy. Wow. Well, I just binged a podcast that was focused on one victim And that was Without Warning, Season 2 by Sheila Wysocki. And it focused on Christian Andriacchio. Oh, I freaking loved Culpable. Me too. And so this is more behind the scenes. She's a private investigator. So it's her team that Mm -hmm. worked with Culpable people. Yeah. That sounded bad. But, you know, the people behind Culpable. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just like an in-depth look at it. And it's eye-opening, just like you said yours is, yeah, it just kind of lays everything out there. Is it kind of like how, this is how I'm picturing it, is it kind of like how when Serial came out and we were like, oh my God, and then Undisclosed came out after it and it was like the attorney's, was it Undisclosed? Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was the attorney's perspective and it was just like so much more to help you like understand the case. Yeah, actually, I think so. Well, I got to add it to the list now. So good. Another highlight of the week, Patreoners, Sarah L. from Texas, Jenna H. from West Virginia, Tanae R. from Oklahoma, Christy C. from South Carolina, Erica P. from Michigan, and Olivia K. from Indiana. Ooh, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) You sounded just like your dad. He used to do that, remember? Yeah. Well... All of these levies are getting all the extra slices and bonus content, including their episode shout out, because they're on Patreon. Mm-hmm. So if you want the same things, head on over patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Thank y'all so much for your support. We love you. All of y'all. And if you cannot financially support us, we totally get that. Something else that is huge for us, reviews. Apple Podcast, those reviews are Huge. And not just like a rating of like stars, like do that, but also like these girls are funny or whatever you think. I mean, I'm not telling you what to rate, whatever. Like we want to know what you think. Yeah. Like put it all out there. We do. (laughs) We sure do. Have you seen our lives? Oh, gosh. (laughs) On Facebook and our actual lives. (laughs) But seriously, it helps us be more visible to people. I know a lot of people listen to us on Spotify, and I don't think you can review on Spotify, but I think just listening on 
like on it helps ranking type thingies. Yeah, I think it helps us like with suggestions. Right. Yeah, because we really have had a lot of people lately that have joined the Facebook group say that they've found us through like Spotify recommendations. Yeah, and again, that's huge. We want to be more visible. So thank y'all, thank y'all, thank y'all. Any type of support, y'all listening to us ramble, thank you. Yes, and we promise into our stories. Whew, it's a good one. Uh Uh-oh. Mine, not yours, just mine. You don't even know what I'm doing. No, I don't. (laughs) All right, so I have been doing big stories, but not so paranormal all the time. Well, this one's back on track, and it should give you the heebie-jeebies. Not to be confused with my mama's. Halloween story, heepy and jeepy. Picture it. Marathon, Wisconsin, 1882. Oh, shit. Okay. Ish. Mm, fake. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Hardy loves it. Yeah, I'm already believing it. Not. <laughs> there was this girl, Emma Schmidt, who was born around this time. Allegedly. <laughs> Wikipedia has it as March 23rd, 1882, But no other source had it, so I don't know if that's true or not. And they also had Milwaukee, not Marathon. Off to a great start. She would go on to live a very hard life. Unfortunately, for most of it, it wasn't even really her living her life. Demon, doppelganger. (laughs) We're talking about a possession case. Yes. So this would go on to be a really big case of possession and exorcism, and it's well-documented, but since it was like, you know, back in the day, she was given a pseudonym, and that pseudonym is Anna Auckland. And it's really because the majority of people would not want to be around someone who was possessed at one point, you know, all the things. I mean, it's fucking back in the day. Uh, even still, if somebody was like, okay, so by the by, I was possessed when I was like 15 years old. Right. Uh, I don't think I'd want to be friends with them. True. I'd be too scared. I'd walk in a fucking room throwing holy water like a fucking sprinkler to see if they reacted. Well, the sprinkler is the only dance move you can really do. Touche. I'm just going to use Anna because that's the name that was on a lot of the documentation that I used, and if that was the pseudonym, I feel bad for using Emma if that was her real name. I I don't know. So, Anna. Anna's childhood was spent in the church a lot. She was super active, super religious, and she actually wanted to be a nun. She only had a basic education, like elementary grade education. Oh, God. I mean, which I feel like is common for the time, though. Yeah, But honestly, that's where the normalcy, if we can even say that, ends. Because her dad wasn't very religious, and he actually spoke out against the Catholic Church. He was just a douchebag. Like, he would be the kind of person, if you're watching, like, a football game, he'd be like, oh, who who are you rooting for? And you'd be like, Blue Jays. And he'd be like, oh, I'm rooting for... Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, that was him. And just, you know, I mean, this is her religion. This is her life. Mm-hmm. And he mocked it. That's unfortunate. He was abusive. Of course. Mm-hmm. An alcoholic. 
all around a terrible father. It's been noted that Jacob, Anna's father, tried to sexually abuse her as well. Oh my God. Tried to? Mm-hmm. Because she said that she would find ways to deny him and keep her safe because he would do it in like a drunken stupor. Oh, Jesus. But it would go on from like age 10 to 14. Oh, God. When Anna was in her preteens, early teens, it's suspected that her mother died and it's like 1890s. Again, we know she died, but dates are hard and her cause of death is actually unknown. Well, I mean, good God, it could have been anything. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I hate to say this, but like Anna right now is a nobody. Like, I hate to say it, but like no one knew that this was gonna like be a big thing. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, and she's gonna be possessed. Yeah. That was Oprah. Yeah, I got that. (laughs) So like record keeping wasn't huge back then. Right. But okay, we do know in 1896, Anna was 14 and this devout Catholic girl started acting very strangely. And she seemed really depressed, but, you know, her mom had recently died, so, yeah. hmm But the strangeness was all centered around religious issues. She started with all the classic stuff, aversion to any holy objects. See, that's why I gotta come in sprinkling holy water everywhere. <laughs> you get a crucifix, you get a crucifix. Splish splash, I was taking a bath. (laughs) And even more so, she felt like there was an unseen force keeping her from entering a church, any church. Hmm. What's so bad is that was her usual place of solace. And so her depression worsened and the strangeness continued to amp up. If she was actually allowed to push through that force and go inside... She would start to shout like I do at dinner sometimes. Sometimes I don't know my volume, (laughs) y'all. I eat tonight. And I eat right whenever I just screamed into the microphone to yell at (laughs) Bo in another room and forgot to cover it. Yeah. Poor Donna and poor Will. But she would start to shout about how she had this great desire to attack the priest and just like to destroy any of the holy artifacts in the church. Just like, you know, I mean, like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. Literally, what the hell is going on with you? Right. She was taken to a doctor, I think several, in fact. But they were all like, she's healthy. Maybe she's got some nervous spells. Maybe she's hysterical sometimes, but Uh she's healthy. She'll grow out of it. You know, that kind of shit. Basically, they couldn't do anything for her, so... I'm surprised they didn't send her away to a mental institution. Mm-hmm. But I bet, like, if we would fast forward to, like, 1920, it would have happened. You know? Yeah. So this went on for years, sadly. And she was still with her father. Like, her life was miserable. I mean, the things that she used to be obsessed with now were, like, the bane of her existence. I was going to say, she had an aversion to them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, at home, her life isn't better. So it's not like, oh, well, I can't go to church, but I can stay at home. Well, no, because if she stays at home, she's got her dad who's knocking on her door trying to go in. Oh, God, that's so creepy. Yeah. Well, shit gets crazier because he brought in her Aunt Mina 
to be like a mother figure for Anna. And was she really Mina? Mm, I mean, sure. But he really brought her in because she was his lover. <gasps> How was she his, her aunt? <laughs> I fucked all those pronouns up. <laughs> <laughs> she was her mom's sister. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it's thought that they could have been having an affair while Anna's mom was alive. You know, mean before they killed her? Mm-hmm. That's a Lifetime movie if I've ever seen one. Another thing Mina is known for is practicing magic, but with ill intent. The worst kind, nothing but malice in her heart. She had no soul left. So she really was Mina. Yeah, yeah. Around 1908, Mina allegedly started to curse Anna by feeding her magical herbs in her food. I mean, basically poisoning her. Exactly. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. Before long, Anna became a shell of a person, almost because she was unable to get sound sleep due to the voices telling her to do heinous things. They would put depraved Thoughts into her mind, all about sexual acts, and she became obsessed. So, her past trauma of her father attempting to rape her manifested as hallucinations. Okay? Yeah. That's what a lot of people, like, think. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. But also, you could think that that trauma... Left her vulnerable and with her aunt. How old was she? Like a, a, a like a roundabout at this point. Do we know? Is she like more late teens? I know you said Mm-mm. at one point preteens. No, she was fourteen when it started to happen, and okay. by now she is like thirty. Oh, okay. So, like, I mean, she hasn't had good sleep in a long fucking time. So she was close to the typical onset age of schizophrenia when it happened. Mm. So, like I said, around 30, that would be 1912, she was barely alive. She turned to the church because no one else could help her or was willing to help her. And, I mean, her father wasn't ever going to help her and her aunt was with her dad. Mm Mm-hmm. So on June 18th, 1912, she was exercised by Father Reisinger. She seemed fine. Her life was kind of unknown after that. You know, for a little bit, things were like, all right. Her normal wasn't normal, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, her father and Mina both passed away. Not together, just at some point they passed away. But before they did... They had carried out some curses on Anna. Why? Why? What was this hatred? I think it all stemmed from him wanting her. And if he didn't get her, because allegedly he did not sexually abuse her, and then Mina was with him, and maybe it was like that... Oh, you hate her. Oh, she's, you know, she just teases you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, we'll teach her Ugh. that, you know, that whole thing. Or she was jealous. And so she's like, mm-hmm. if I can just get her out, he'll be all mine. Yeah. You know, who knows? 
So at some point prior to August 1928, Anna started to experience those same symptoms again. So those sexual thoughts started to come back. And she was like, oh, my God, I think my dad and Mina are haunting me. Like their spirits are inside of me. And at this point, she's 46. Damn. So she's like, I think I'm going insane. Like, I think I'm going insane. At least she knew this time she had someone in her corner. So she asked Father Reisinger to help her. And so he's like, look, it's going to be tough. Because how Catholics believe if you exercise a demon, it's going to, and like you get possessed again, it's going to come back like sevenfold. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so he's saying it's going to make an exorcism pretty much near impossible, but like, I got you. We're going to do this. In a 2003 article by Greg Jarrett in the Daily Nonpareil, it's explained that by the time they're having this exorcism, Anna had not really had a peaceful night's sleep for 26 years because the voices inside of her head. That literally made my eyes heavy. Right? 26 years. I couldn't imagine 26 hours. Right? I tell you what, that's a fucking way to break me. You want the codes (laughs) to a nuclear launch pad? Don't let me sleep. And I'll be like, how many? Look, the answer is C. Well, one, don't give her any numbers, anything to remember, unless it's written down somewhere. And actually, no, just don't give her anything to remember, because this girl will not. Yeah, because even then, if you write it down somewhere, I'll forget where it is. Carrie's famous last words, I'll put it right here, because I'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was a good hiding spot. Where would I think was a good hiding spot? (laughs) All right, so in the late summer of 1928, Father Reisinger was chit-chatting with his friend, Reverend Steiger. They're, you know, like, talking. Shooting the shit like priests do. Mm-hmm. Like, biblical shit. Did you hear what Cain did to Abel? <laughs> <laughs> well, after they talked about that, he brought up Anna. And he's like, look, I need somewhere that is remote because I don't need this woman's life Broadcast everywhere. Yeah. So Steiger had a parish in Erling, Iowa. And so he's like, yeah, bring her down here. You know, like, we'll we'll all do it. Come on. Well, there's a convent of Franciscan sisters, and they get the blessing of the mother superior or her permission, whichever it is. Really up to date on my stuff here. <laughs> and so August 18th. 1928, Anna arrives in Iowa by train. She gets there. Immediately, she's like, "Uh uh-uh. Like, the whole way there? Perfect. She gets there? uh Uh-uh. They bring her food to her room, and she's like, get that away from me. Because one of the nuns had blessed it, put some holy water in it, you know, all the things, and she could sense that it's blessed. Wow. And what she would do is like a deep rumble purr, kind of like a cat when it was being threatened or like when it's about to pounce. And it was impossible to make her eat the blessed food. So they would have to take it back to the kitchen and exchange it for unblessed food. And if they brought some more 
blessed food out, she would know. That's crazy. Yeah. So the exorcism was done in three sessions. And it began that very next day. And it would last a total of 23 days. Holy shit. Which they normally take a long time anyway. But this, I mean, she's been dealing with these demons a long fucking time. Session number one, it's the opening prayers, the invocations. And that's when Father Reisinger is asking for the demons to reveal their names, you know, starting starting the whole process. And this is not his first rodeo, obviously. So he has bound her to the bed and he has some of the stronger nuns to be there. Because he's like, look, y'all are, y'all are going to have to hold her down mm-hmm. when we start. Everything's okay. Like, you know, it's it's going. And as they're, as they're doing their prayer, Anna sank into like a deep sleep. And her eyes just closed tighter and tighter and tighter until they were impossibly tight. That's what he said. <laughs> but then right when they began the rite of exorcism, she just leapt into the air, like completely ripped through the restraints. Damn. Was just like, nuns, get out my way. Went to, like, on the wall, like fucking Spider-Man. Oh, God. She's on the wall above the room's door. And so everyone's, like, freaking out. Father Reisinger is like, get her down. Restrainer. Yeah. Let's go. Let's do this again. Yeah. So the nuns have to drag her down from the wall, get her onto her bed. They're restraining her, like all of this stuff. And the whole time she is howling. And that doesn't stop until the end of the session, which is days later. Oh, God. Which I'm sure only adds to her exhaustion. So like if she's that long without sleep, and then she's that long, like, yelling? Can you imagine Mm -hmm. how exhausted she must be? No. Well, to build upon that, her condition worsened. She started to defecate. Oh. She started to urinate right there on the bed. Well, honestly, they they had her tied up, so what choice did she have? Oh, no, she did it on purpose. Oh. Yeah, like, looking at him in the eye and was like... R. Kelly style. (laughs) She was like, you're a piece of shit, and would shit. Mm. Here's the thing, though. She didn't have any real solid food. She would just have a little bit of milk, a little bit of water, but it was like her body was producing all the fluid, all the stuff. And she then began to vomit, Mm. projectile vomit, and her vomit was described as exceedingly dark. Ew. Like tobacco juice. Ew. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? I could have gone a lifetime without hearing that. Right? The nuns had to clean it up. Ew. 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 Over and over. No. Just no. Just no. Mm-mm. 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 Can you imagine the stench in that room? No, I can't. I don't want to. Ew. And Reisinger just kept going and kept going. He knew what was up. So the second session is about to start. That's going to take place September 13th through the 20th. He started a similar course as the first session. 
And he is having to physically wrestle with her, you know? Yeah. And she's tiny. She's frail. She's, you know, I mean, like, everything you know about a possessed person. Yeah. They're so vulnerable, so emaciated. But while he's having to deal with her, he is sweating so bad because she's so fucking strong that he's having to change clothes at least twice a day. Oh, God. But she's also vomiting on him. Mm. You know, shitting on him. Mm -mm. As you do for the one you love. (laughs) Peeing on him. Mm. And, like, he, you know, again, would keep powering through, keep doing all of the stuff. And, like, she would get so mad, she would just start foaming at the mouth. Dang. On some of the days during this second session, Anna's face would bloat up. And basically, you know those commercials, like Sudafed commercials, where, like, your head filling like a balloon? Yeah. Literally would blow up like that. And they said that her face would become so distorted that she was unrecognizable. They said it was like it was filled with blood. Her eyes bulged out of their sockets. And her lips grew to the size of hands. What? Like, all I can picture is the nutty professor when he starts changing back to the professor and his lip goes like, boom. Yes. Like, that's all I can picture. Okay, you're going to be like, really, Carrie? But all I can picture is... Hitch. No. Worse. So there's a sensory and a motor map for your brain called a homunculus. (laughs) And that's what I picture. (laughs) They called this when she would inflate, but she would get super light. Like sometimes she would levitate off of the bed. So it's literally like her body was a balloon then. Like, gravity had no impact. Right. Also, her abdomen would swell and inflate beyond where you would think that it would burst open. So, she wasn't eating. Yes. So, she was emaciated. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which distends your abdomen. Yes. Okay. Yes. But, suddenly, it would... Like, her whole body would deflate. Her body would turn so hard and heavy that she would sink into the mattresses, everything. And her bed, like, the frame would actually bend under her weight. And it was an iron frame. So, shallow howl moment. Like, what is this bed made of? Steel. Yeah. Yeah. So, she was catatonic. And that's all I've got. But how do you say that the bed bent under her weight when she was emaciated? Well, I don't know why she became heavy, but I'm saying she became rigid because of being catatonic. Yeah, get that. But I don't know why it made her heavier. Okay. Well, and then there was this one time where there was a, like, a lump under her skin that would move, and it was like a pea-sized lump. And it would just move up her arm. Like the thing on the mummy? Yep. Up her face. I don't know how people, if this is real, I don't know how people can see this and 
live a life after this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, what? I mean, hell, you just quoted the money. And you're like, oh, like, yeah. And that was a movie. If you saw that in real life, I'd be like, what? Never be the same. No. Well, during this long session, Father Reisinger was able to get the names of the demons. There is Beelzebub. There is Judas. There was Jacob. And there was Mina. <gasps> Her dad and aunt. And when each demon spoke, the voices suited each character and they all stated that they wanted Anna to suffer and to burn in hell. The voice belonging to Judas, he said, quote, to bring her to despair so that she will commit suicide and hang herself. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. So the third and final session, December 15th through December 23rd. Everything about Anna was inhuman at this point she smelled Mm. of rot Mm. she had like flies that would just be like in hordes around her because of all the defecation all of the vomit that she still would projectile gross when she had hardly any food or substance in her body that's what i was just about to say how she's not eating right The nuns would have to do this in shifts because they could not, like, stomach it. They said even while she was sleeping, the demons, like, never let her rest. You would hear her whisper the whole time. Sometimes you, like, really couldn't understand her. Her lips would not be moving, but you could hear her whispering. But then, like, if you got closer, you could hear her, and she would be calling out God and condemning him. And then anyone who was in her room, she would just verbally assault them. Oh, my God. But her eyes were closed. Her mouth wouldn't move. Like, it was them speaking out of her. Anna also did the whole thing where she understood Latin. She understood German. She understood English. And again, she only had the basic education. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, she was a devout Catholic, so... I feel like Latin, she would know some. Yeah. And then the place that she lived had a lot of German immigrants and everything. So I think German, she would know a little bit. So that's kind of not that much of a stretch for me. But Father Reisinger, he just kept going and kept going. And he was willing the demons to leave. He was breaking Anna down. Her howling that she was doing, it started to weaken. And so it was more like moans and Mm. groans at this point. However, this has been the only case of exorcism where the priest have said that they had a vision of the powers of hell. At this point, like it was like everything of evil, they were just like had their claws in her, you know, and was trying to hold Mm. on. And in the final half hour of the last day of the exorcism, both of the priests saw a crowned Lucifer and a hairy Beelzebub, and they were both in the corner. And it was like they couldn't move out of that corner, but they were like snarling and like flames were, you know, 
all around them. Like, they wanted just to, like, burn the place down. Go back to her. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't because it's been blessed. This is an amazing, you know, like, this is Mm -hmm. God's place and everything. But it's like, they didn't want to let go of Anna. They, You know what I mean? It was just Mm -hmm. like the battle of good and evil. He kept demanding each demon by name to return to hell and just over and over repeating and repeating that. And sometimes like they would think, okay, this is it. We got her. She is saved because they would just like, oh, she would fall to the bed, you know, and they're mm-hmm. like, okay. But then right when they would be like, all right, let's close this. It'd be like, ha ha, gotcha. So she's held down again and she's trying to just get out of their hold, everything. And then finally, she just broke away from everyone who had their hands on her. And she stood straight up on her bed. It was like there was a board on her back and it was like, whoop, you know, like it was yeah. no. She didn't bend. She just stood up. Right. At that exact same time, Father Reisinger was again commanding the demon's leave. And this time he was like, in the name of the most blessed trinity, quote, depart ye fiends of hell, be gone, Satan, the lion of Judah reigns. Okay? When he said that, Anna's still straight up on the bed. Her mouth is closed, but her voice is projecting out through her closed lips. Like a ventriloquist. Yes. And so these are the words that she said. Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, hell, hell, hell. Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, hell, hell, hell. And at the final moment, the stench went away and Anna opened her eyes. And then the first words ever spoke to her in this whole ordeal where she was completely herself, she said, praise be Jesus Christ. What? So as soon as she said this, nuns were in tears. Everyone's like, hallelujah, legit. Yeah. An exorcism worked and she didn't die. Right. So yeah, it worked. And she kind of went back into obscurity because again, they had the pseudonym. Mm -hmm. They were in like Iowa, all the things. She did return to Wisconsin, and she was able to be a devout Catholic again. She could she could go to Mass. She could participate in communion. All of the things that she had had such trouble with before. The time, the place, and the date of her death are all unknown. It is reported that within the year of Anna's exorcism, all of the nuns who were there at that convent requested transfers out. Yeah, because they were like, I can't be up in this mess again. Right. That actual structure is gone now. It fell into, like, disarray, and it was torn down in the late 1990s or the early 2000s. So, like I said, this exorcism was documented by Reisinger and Steiger for the church evaluation. And then Father Carl Vogel... He was German, and he was not present during this exorcism, but he interviewed a lot of the participants. He had other witnesses about the events, and he wrote a book that was translated 
into English that was like a pamphlet, question mark, question mark, that retold of the exorcism. And it was titled, Begone Satan. Cleverly named. (laughs) Right? I did want to touch on one thing that the night before the final session, like the final day of that final session, Mm -hmm. Anna had told one of the nuns that she had spoken to St. Therese Lisieux, and she was the co-patron saint of France, along with Joan of Arc, basically. Mm -hmm. And so what the article said is that she was the patron saint of people who had lost their parents, such as Anna did, and that St. Therese told her, do not lose courage. The end is soon at hand. And that very next day is when all of the things fell into place. Yeah. Wow. So she had a vision of good, and then the priest had that vision of hell, basically. But, I mean, she made it out. But like you said, I mean, everything kind of was triggered around when her father yeah. did something, like her father molesting her, her father died. So, like, like that stirred up emotion. And True. I mean, I don't know. Like, I know it's corny, but I mean, she had her internal demons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's so hard about these, like, demon possession stories is that it could some some aspects of it could just easily be explained away with some sort of psychopathy, like right. schizophrenia or whatever, you know? I don't know if psychopathy is even the right word, but you get the point. Yeah. Also, I feel like that priest was like, let's do an exorcism. <laughs> it's going to be tough, but we can do it. Like, yeah. had, had he ever done one before? He had. I mean, was it successful? It was. Oh. Well, okay tally for him (laughs) and during those stories too like i really try to put myself in the position of the person or their family or you know just people involved in the story and how truly scary it must be like knowing that something is going on and not knowing the cause and then how do you make that leap to well it's got to be a fucking demon i don't know and then they all are like starved they're all broken Mm -hmm. down and so i mean it's a form of abuse almost which is why that annalise case went to trial yeah because how do you prove it and i mean at what point do you say like okay well you know this is sanctioned by the church this is a church or this is a religious matter we need to stay out of it but if it was some quote-unquote religion that was deemed a cult we'd be stepping in so why let the Catholic church do it. Yeah. You know, so it's just like, at what point do you say, no, this isn't okay. Like what makes this religion okay to do it. And another one, not. Yeah. Cause who decides which one's really a cult and which one's not, you know what I mean? Right. I'm not saying Catholicism is a cult. I'm just saying like, as a general separation of church and state, how you decide that. I don't know. I do not want to be a lawmaker. I was just about to say, this is why we're not lawmakers. Also, we're not lawbreakers either, honestly. Besides speeding, I will break that law every time. I mean, I do a lot of rolling stops. I totally paused. Okay, everything but a traffic law. Traffic laws need not apply. I mean, those are just suggestions, really. <laughs> well, I have a story about someone else who didn't follow the law. Are you surprised by that? No. 
I didn't know that was going to be your segue, Paul Blart. You have been trying to make this fucking segue joke happen. Yes. Y'all, she's been trying that for like a <laughs> month. Longer. <laughs> Pretty sure if they get the bloopers, y'all hear me being like, we're not using that. No, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that all of my jokes land, but I mean, segue. Okay, so for my story, we are going across the pond. You know, my fave. I got two good articles from timesonline.com and mailonline.com. And I want you to picture July 1992. There's this girl. Her name is Rachel Nickel. And she is beautiful. She's a dime piece. She's not a dime a dozen. (laughs) Oh, God. Terrible. We're stupid. That was terrible jokes. (laughs) But we're keeping it. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) So, again, Rachel was absolutely beautiful, a part-time model. She lived with her partner that she had been with a long time, and they had a two-year-old son together. Well, she was doing really great in her modeling career. Like, I'm talking, like, on magazine covers, all the things. And... She decided she wanted to cut back a little bit. She wanted to be able to spend time with her son, Alex, and Andre, who was her partner. They lived in West London. One day, she went to Wimbledon Common because it was a park that she felt pretty safe at. It was, I mean, common. (laughs) Just kidding. But it really was a place where she felt safe. This is not right, but all I'm picturing is Notting Hill. Mm Mm-hmm. When, like, at the end where, like, they're on the bench. Mm -hmm. Classic. I know. Well, and she also went to this park because the ones by her house, she would, like, because she was so beautiful that she would, lots of, like, cat calls. You know, she just was, men were just, you to her. You know, on this particular day, Rachel and Alex are both in the common, hanging out, enjoying the weather, when Rachel is attacked. And nobody really knows what happens, how how it happens, like, you know, the specifics of her getting attacked. But all we know is that when she was found, her two-year-old Alex was clinging to her body, crying and begging, wake up, mommy, mommy, wake up. She had been stabbed 49 times and sexually assaulted. What the fuck? Uh Uh-huh. Just out in this, like, park. With her kid. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, you know I'm going to have to bring it up. 49 fucking times they couldn't do 50. I'm sorry, y'all. It's it's a thing. It's a... Well, you know what? Her throat was slit, too, so let's count that as 50. Fuck! Oh, my gosh. Okay. Mm -hmm. You had to have fucking 50, didn't you? I'm sorry. Why do I ask for this stuff? They said that it would have taken more than three minutes to do all of those stab wounds. Three minutes. And no one saw anything? Nope. You know that those three minutes had to be so freaking long. Well, and think about this, too, is her baby boy was with her. You know, so she put up a fucking fight. Like, she had defensive wounds, but nobody heard her scream. And, like... He was with her long enough to sexually assault her, so pull her because she was found with her jeans, like and everything pulled down to her ankles. So he was with her long enough to sexually assault her, in addition to the three minutes that it took to cause all those stab wounds. 
Well, they found this like scrap of paper on her forehead and they were like, oh, well, this must be like some sort of like ritual killing something like what, like, what is this? But later they found out that her baby boy, Alex had put it on her head to make mummy better. Like it was like a band aid. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, way to tear my heart out of my freaking chest. Mm-hmm. I know. He is too pure for this world. So, they're like, well, where the fuck did the guy go that killed her? Because, I mean, he had to have been covered in blood, right? So, where the fuck did he go? Well, nobody saw who went, who left. Maybe he was like, if you let me rape you, don't make a sound. You know, like, I won't kill your baby. Mm-hmm. And so she did. Mm-hmm. But why, like, stab her like that? It presents, like, you know, usually stabbings like that, you you know the person. Right. Like, they know it's each a, other. It's a it's a crime of passion. It's a, there's some sort of emotion invo- yeah. involved. Okay, sorry. Whew. No, but you're totally right. That's probably what happened. Because it all goes back to... The Green Mile, that he killed him with their love. Mm-hmm. So the murder of Rachel happened in July of 92. And a few years leading up to that, August 89, there were a bunch of rapes that had been happening. They were happening in an area called Green Chain Walk. And this was kind of in like southeast London. That's what the internet had told me. Sorry to everyone in in London that's like, absolutely not. You don't know your directions. So, but this rapist had been raping all of these people and they were calling him the green chain rapists. So you have the rapes occurring and then you have poor Rachel raped and murdered. Well, not long after her murder, I'm talking like September of 92. So just like three months later, Colin Stagg is picked up brought in for questioning about Rachel's murder. The police bring him in, all the questions, and then they release him. Well, then, in January 93, they start this undercover, like, operation. They called it Honey Trap. Well, aren't they clever? Mm-hmm. So, what they did was they got an undercover police officer. Her name was Lizzie James. And she was, like, writing letters to Colin Stagg to get him to confess. Well, in August of 93, they arrest Colin Stagg and charge him with Rachel's murder. And all this time, you still have the rapes happening over in Green Chain Walk. In November of 1993, there was a woman named Samantha Bissett. And she had a four-year-old daughter named Jasmine. Samantha was beautiful, kind of a similar appearance to Rachel. I mean, just just beautiful. Samantha was an artist. She was what you would consider like a hippie. She liked she was lived in some like hippie communes and she was just a free spirit. She had some money trouble, but she was doing her best to take care of Jasmine. She wanted to get Jasmine into some better schools. And so she wanted to get a portfolio to put together like portraits and stuff so that she could become a model. And she's now living in Plumstead. So she had her little portfolio, but she wasn't getting any 
like bookings from it. And so she was like, well, I guess here we go. Going to go to the personals. She had some ads in the personals, like things like young, sexy, long-legged blonde, and said how, like that she was looking for some spare cash to pay for a small child's school fees in return for regular, discreet, no-strings, fun liaisons. So she was just doing the best she could to make ends meet so that she could take care of Jasmine. I wonder if anyone's ever put in like personals, uh, if you like pina coladas, and like someone responded. I don't know. And like, you know, did the whole thing. I don't yeah. know. Like, I need to research that. Probably. Well, her apartment, the back of it, you could see from like a park. And so she never closed her blinds. And so you could see everything happening in her apartment if you just looked. Who is she, Beck, from you? Well, Samantha was murdered. And just kind of trigger warning about the details I'm about to say. Because when the investigators got there and were taking pictures of the crime scene, a seasoned forensic photographer, like, passed out at at the crime scene. Had to be taken away in an ambulance. And it said that this photographer... Never worked again. Holy Hannah. And you're about to tell us the details? Well, some of them. Samantha had been stabbed 20 times in the head and neck. Oh my gosh. One of the stab wounds severed her spinal cord. And one of them cut an artery in her neck that, I mean, drenched the crime scene with blood. She was sexually assaulted. After Samantha was killed and raped, the killer then went to Jasmine. No. The killer raped Jasmine and then smothered her with her duvet. No. Then he left her dead body on the bed, surrounded her by her toys. Then he dragged Samantha's body back into the living room And then put her in the same position that of how she and like this boyfriend would have sex because the murderer would like watch her from the window. What a sick, twisted person. Mm -hmm. Then he began to mutilate her body. 60 more stab wounds. He tried to cut off her leg. She was disemboweled. And it was just such a bloody gruesome crime scene so the police are like what the fuck who like who did this they did an autopsy and they didn't really find anything and so they asked for a second autopsy to be done when they did the second autopsy and they were taking out like the sutures and stuff from the first autopsy they realized that they had missed something the killer had taken part of her abdominal skin as a trophy. What the Ed Gein? Yeah. So they do, you know, of course, all the forensics, all the things in the apartment. And when they are dusting for prints, they actually find fingerprints for a guy by the name of Robert Clive Knapper. So the police do some digging, and they find that Robert Knapper had a pretty shitty childhood that 
involved some sexual assault by a family friend while they were camping and stuff. Why are people shitty human beings? I don't know. But the sexual assault had obviously a really big impact on him. And his behavior started changing after that. Started having trouble in school. Wasn't getting along with his siblings. He, in fact, he started bullying his siblings. And he, I mean, he was just so, he was just violent. And then he became almost like a pathological liar. Like, he just lied about everything. Then. Yeah, because he was having to lie about something huge. Well, then he started spying on his sister in the shower, watching her get undressed. Mm-mm. One time when she was asleep, she woke up to find that Robert had pulled the covers back and was just like staring at her. Uh-uh. When he was 11, his mom sent him for a psychiatric evaluation. He was in therapy for six years. They said he had Asperger's, but it was like there was nothing they could do. Robert started having like delusions. He was convinced that he was this millionaire that had a master's degree in math and that he had won a Nobel Peace Prize. And he believed that he could communicate via telepathy. So there was a lot, a lot of mental illness going on. Well, in November of 89, Robert's mom, Miss Napper, she calls the police and she says, look, my son came over. He's got some mental illness stuff going on. But he told me that he raped a woman in Plumstead. And the police are like, okay, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Kind of blew her off. Well, the police are finding all this out when they're doing the digging about Samantha's murder. And they go, hold the phone. Oh, Robert's name has come up a couple of times in the Green Chain Walk rapes. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So the police are like, okay, we know that in August of 89, we think is when the first woman was raped by the rapist that they dubbed the Green Chain Rapist. And she was raped inside her home in Plumstead. In front of her two kids. Then, in March of 92, two more women were raped in close to the Green Chain Walk. And then, a couple months later, another mother was raped while she was with her daughter. Like, pushing her in a, in a stroller, or a pram, as they call. So, the police, in August of 92, do bring Robert in for questioning about the rapes. They ask him to give a DNA sample... But he's like, yeah, I'll come in and do that. Of course, he doesn't. So they ask him again, and they're like, he was like, yeah, I'll come and do that. And he doesn't. Well, the police say, oh, you know what? We're going to dismiss him as a suspect because he's too tall to be the rapist based on the reports. Now, some things I saw said that like the witness testimony and stuff was that the the rapist was like 5'7". Some stuff said 5'10". And then... Robert, some stuff said he was 6'1", some stuff said he was 6'3". So, I mean, that's a pretty big difference from 5'7 to 6'3". So, somewhere in the middle of those numbers, I think, is the actual numbers. But, again, a lot of different sources said different things. Well, if I'm about to do something, like, nefarious, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to be hunched over trying to be, like, Ace Ventura. Like, 
sneaking up on somebody. I'm not going to be like, hey, I'm 6'3", I'm a giraffe. Right. You know what I mean? You're going to try to hide a distinguishing characteristic. Yeah. Absolutely. So now we're into April of 93. There was a gun that was buried in Wynn's Common that had Robert Knapper's fingerprints on it, but nothing was, like, done to him. But that was before Samantha's murder. Well, then two of the victims of the Green Chain Rapists actually identify Robert Knapper as their attacker. Wow. The police on Samantha's case are putting the pieces together. They're going, okay, well, we know that Robert killed Samantha and poor, well, poor both of them, but four-year-old Jasmine. We know he did that. We got his fingerprints, hook, line, and sinker. He did it. We got him. But we also know that that MO of a mother and a daughter, based on profiling, we know that, okay, so he's taken it. He's gone from doing these rapes. Because that matches the rapist that's been terrorizing the Green Chain Walk. And they're saying that there are 86 victims along the Green Chain Walk, like, from that rapist. Holy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yep. So, the police, again, they put that together. So, they're like, okay, well, we know he did this, and he did this. So, why did the police who were investigating these rapes suck so bad? Because his mother had reported... He had done it, you know. How did how did they miss all this? And his name had come up a few times. Multiple times. And then you're just going to dismiss him because because he's too tall? Uh, okay. Yeah, a gun is found in a park uh-huh. that has his fingerprints on it. Yeah, because, again, when you have a gun pointed to your face with your child with you and you're trying to save your child... All while getting raped, you're really going to remember if he was 5'10 or 6'1. Yeah, right. Right. Well, Robert is actually found guilty of the two murders of Samantha and Jasmine. And he's actually sentenced to a mental institution for the criminally insane. Well, the detectives that figured out that he had killed Samantha and Jasmine are like, um, hey, hey, guys. So, this is really similar to Rachel's murder. Are you sure Colin did it? And, of course, no police officer wants to admit that they've fingered the wrong guy and arrested him and all, you know, ruined his life. Well, in September of 1994. Y'all see how she just talked so fast so I couldn't say anything about she said fingered the wrong guy? Yes, I intentionally blocked you from that. I cock blocked you, finger blocked you, something. All the blockage. <laughs> well, a judge actually dismissed the case against Colin Stagg in September 94 because he said that the honey trap operation was, quote, an attempt to incriminate a suspect by positive and deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. Yeah, it was a honey trap, uh, a.k.a. entrapment. Uh-huh. Well, the police were like, well, we're not looking for anybody else. Finally, though, everybody puts their big boy britches on and interviews Robert Knapper about Rachel's murder. At first, he's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. He's interviewed again about Rachel's murder, still denies that he had anything to do with it. But, okay, so that was in December of 95. In 
July of 2004 is when they finally reopened completely the investigation into Rachel's murder. And in 2007, he's charged with her murder. Finally. Wow. He ends up pleading guilty to manslaughter for Rachel's murder. But I think it was just a way for them to get it closed, you know, because he did it. I mean, he he fucking did it. It was him 100%. There's no question. So I think it was just kind of a way to just to end it. They ended up giving Colin Stagg 706,000 pounds in compensation because of what they did to his life. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that had the police done their due diligence when it came to the rapes back in 1989, when his mother called and turned him in, they would have done their due diligence then. Three people could still be alive. And countless others not raped. Mm -hmm. With their kids fucking watching, with their kids holding their mother's dead body Asking their mom to wake back up. Mm. So Robert Knapper was, again, sentenced to a mental institution. So he is serving an indefinite sentence at Broadmoor. Wow. And again, a different time. Police procedures are very different. All the things. We've grown. We've learned. But damn. You know, what's interesting is both of our stories deal with childhood sexual abuse And, like, it triggers something that forever changes their life. Mm -hmm. If we could figure out for some why some people who are sexually assaulted and or just any type of abuse in childhood has to try to find their power by victimizing someone else. If we could figure out why some do that and others don't, we could solve half the damn world's problems. Right? Just, like, what makes that cycle of abuse continue to occur? Like, and how come for some it doesn't? But again, that's, like, the million-dollar question. Right. Well, two more heavy cases. I know. I think, too, we haven't had, like, a good mental health check-in since around Christmas. And I think this might be a good time because these stories are heavy. And also the stories show how important good mental health is. And... Reaching out for help and getting the support that you need so that you can break cycles that are there. And being the support for the people who do reach out. Mm -hmm. So just take care of yourselves. Seek help where you need it. I just know because we talked a little bit about Bill Cosby in the beginning. Both of our stories. So it's like the Bill Cosby thing and both of our stories deal with sexual assault. And so this episode may have been very triggering for some. So just please take care of yourself if you were triggered, even if you don't know if you were triggered. Like just be mindful, be introspective and be safe. I mean, just know that we love you and we're here for you. Same goes for the Facebook group. I was going to say we have the Facebook group is amazing and everyone is very supportive And we've had some people reach out and say in the group, you know, hey, this is a really shitty day. Hit me with all the funny memes or I'm going through this. Has anyone been through this? And it's it's a safe space. And if anyone makes it not a safe space, bye. (laughs) So it's a safe space. So if you aren't in it, join it. And thank you all so freaking much for listening and supporting us. And 
being a part of the community online that is this safe space so that we can have heavy episodes like this. And that Facebook group can be a touchstone for people who may or may not be triggered. So remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.